well, which is, chapter 19 is where we're going to spend most of our time tonight. Um, now, we, remember we talked last week about, or yeah, last week about uh, God bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt and really preparing them like a, a father prepares his children. Uh, how he disciplines his children, how he trains them to listen to his voice. And this is exactly what God is doing for his, his people. He's bringing them out and he's giving them specific commands. And he, he tests them uh, time and time again with very specific commands. This is what I want you to do and this is what I want you not to do. And we find that, after, that time after time, um, he, the people, the children of Israel, continue to not listen to him. They, he, he tests them. I need to get my sheet out here so I'm not lost. Uh, he tests them uh, when, from the time they cross the Red Sea, or the Reed Sea, as we saw in the text. Um, from the time they cross the sea and in the desert, he immediately begins testing them. We see two themes that are predominant throughout the book of Exodus, really throughout the entire Pentateuch, but we're going to see it. We're going to see it mainly come to bear in Exodus and in Numbers, where the people are tested by the Lord. That's one theme that pops up, is that the Lord is going to intentionally test them. He's going to test them with hunger. He's going to test them with thirst. He's going to test them with a number of different ways that He brings tests in their life, but He's going to test them. And what we see time and time again is that they fail. That's one theme that comes up. Then another theme that comes up is their grumbling. And constantly they bring their grumbles and their gripes to Moses and they just lay them at his feet and they're frustrated by his leadership. And both of those things uh, the Lord considers to be wicked. Uh, and he's going to punish them for their grumbling and their complaints and for their uh, continuing, to, continuing to fail the tests that he gives them. He, we saw last week that he tests their trust in his provision. So he's going to provide for them, and he tests their trust. He tells them, look, I'm going to provide for you manna in the wilderness. I'm going to give you bread. And they, they, he says, but listen, when, you, when I give it to you, you're going to gather it that morning, and you're going to gather only what you can eat that day. But what do they do? They gather what they can eat that day, and then a little bit more. And he says, well, if you do that, it's going to spoil and it's not going to actually work for you. And, well, they just go ahead and do it anyway. Because the sense is when you gather, well, it's possible that tomorrow morning when I wake up, I won't have this. And so I'm going to go ahead and gather just so at least I have breakfast. I don't like to gather on an empty stomach. And so, so, they, so they do it and, and it, the manna becomes sour. And except for there's one day that that doesn't happen, and that is going to be on Friday. So they, they're able to gather two days on Friday. And he tells them, this is another test, do you test the provision of the Sabbath, where you will rest on the seventh day, on Saturday? So he tests them there. Do you listen to that command? And it turns out they don't. They gather enough on Friday to last them for Saturday, but then on Saturday, what do they do? Make it outside the tent, and they start trying to gather again. But lo and behold, there's no manna there. And so he's tested them on two fronts. We saw even in their trip, just from crossing of the sea down to Sinai, he's already tested them twice and they failed. And why do these tests come up? Because he's about to, they're about to get to Sinai where he's going to establish his covenant with them and he's going to give them a slew of commands. 
Way more than just the two. But those two are going to be in addition, right? And we're going to see how they, how they do. Well, we're going to see ultimately that they don't, it's not so hot is the result. But the point is, he's training them to listen to his voice. Because they've been in Egypt for 400 years, and the gods of Egypt have worked their way into to their heart. And, of course, it's going to be very difficult to listen to God, whom most of them don't really know. And so he's training them as they go through the land. So he tests them with uh, thirst. And they go to Moses with their grumbles and their complaints. And what does the Lord tell Moses? Well, go to the rock and take your staff and strike it, and water will flow from it. So he provides for them water. Now, I want to show you, just, uh, just to remind you, as far as where we're at geographically. Here's the map. What? Yeah, put, put, yeah. Hey, you complain about the size of the thing, and then I get a bigger one, and now you complain about how big it is. This is the grumbling. I'm about to strike a rock. Okay. Okay. Okay, I saw your face. Uh-huh. Uh huh. What did you say? Your face grumbled. It was a grumbly face. That's right. Moses said, I saw your face. You didn't have to say anything. I saw it. I saw the look in your eye. All right. Uh, so, oh boy. Um, okay, okay, back on track. So just as a reminder, there you go. You like it? It's blinding. Uh, um, just a reminder of the area we're in. The Sinai Peninsula is right here. The land of Canaan is right up here. The land of Egypt right up here. God does not take them on the north route out of Egypt into the land of Canaan. Why? You remember? The Philistines, the ancient ancestors of the Philistines are up here. Incidentally, where all the stuff you read about and hear about on TV happens is right there in that land of the Philistines. Okay? So the Gaza Strip and all of that right there on the coast. You don't, when, it, when it comes to like the problems that are happening in Israel... A lot of people ask, because we're, we're planning on going on a trip in March, and a lot of people ask, well, is it dangerous? Yes, if you go right there, dangerous. But you're, you can't, so it doesn't, don't worry about it. <laughs> like, we're not even going to be close to it. So uh, it's unfortunate, because there's a lot of history there, too, but we're, we, you won't be going there. Uh, but anyway, he doesn't take them on the north route into Canaan, even though that's far faster. Why? Because he's got to train them on how to listen to his voice. He can't just put them in the land right away. He's, they're going to be almost a year at Mount Sinai. So there's a long time of just establishing a relationship with his people before he ever even takes them into the promised land or prepares to take them into the promised land. Okay, so what they do instead is they go the south route. And once they go the south route out of Egypt, then they turn even further south and start heading down here toward the southern tip of Sinai. So that's where we're going to zoom in just so you get a better look of it. This is the route they take. One thing that I also want you to notice is how much water is around that route. Well, it seems like there's a ton of water, except, and now I actually had a conversation with Stephen about this just the other night. Uh, when you take, to take uh, saline water, salt water, and transfer it to, to drinkable, potable water, we can do that now. They did not have that technology back then. So virtually all the water you're seeing over here in the Suez Canal or in the Gulf of Aqaba, or in the Red Sea, which would be down here. Uh, none of that is drinkable. 
So now look how much water. If you take this, this blue and this blue out of it, how much water is here? None. So here you have a group of people who are going to make it in the wilderness for, by the time they actually make it in, about 42 years in total that they're in the wilderness. And yeah, probably it's going to be somewhere in that neighborhood. We'll see in numbers, it's roughly, yeah, that of fighting men. So you, you're probably talking even more people than that. Um, I think it's, if I remember right, it's something like, for some reason, the number 600,000 stands out, something like that, of fighting men. So that would be, that would put it well up over the millions uh, if all of them were married. I mean, so you, you never know. Uh, kids and all that kind of stuff, who knows? And cattle, uh, I mean, your, your livestock and all of this kind of stuff. And they're not eating their cattle. Okay, they're not eating their cattle. They're sacrificing their cattle, but they're not eating their cattle. <laughs> I guess they're eating the sacrifice, but you get the idea. It's not all, they're mainly keeping them alive. Okay, So in this area, for a year, and they're going to have water to drink and food to eat. Now some people, especially liberal scholarship, is going to write that off as fanciful fairy tales that are being told to us, revisionist history that's being told to us. I happen to believe the biblical account and if you do believe the biblical account, you have people live million people living in the desert for many, many years and are, are always provided for with food to eat and water to drink. Um, so that shouldn't go unnoticed in that whole story. Now, if we were to look at um, this right here, Mount Sinai, uh, today would be called Jabal Musa, the Mount of Moses. This is what it looks like, right there. Jabal Musa. That one, little, that one little place right here. This is the visitor center that Moses established with Aaron, uh, where they, 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 they established their visitor center there. But uh, you can go there today, you know, at your own risk. But you can go there uh, today, and you can hike up uh, to the top of Jabal Musa. Now, I say that because this is a picture of another mountain. And if we're going to go, if we're going to go, let me go back to the map real quick. Let me go to the broad map. This would be where Jabal Musa is. The second mountain that I'm showing you is over here in Saudi Arabia. This is the Arabian Peninsula. Peninsula. So it'd be over here in this little mountain range is this mountain here. And that mountain is called Jabal Makla, which means the burnt mountain. Now, the reason I point this out is because this shows up on a lot of YouTube documentaries by, by, by uh, YouTube archaeologists. If you see it in a documentary, pretty much don't believe it, okay? <laughs> just, just as a rule of thumb, or just it's highly suspicious, okay? Um, and if you see anything by Ron Wyatt, who was an archaeologist, just... Just ignore it. Go to the next video. Okay. Um, but they claim, oh, some people will claim that this is the Mount of Moses because the top right here you can see, maybe you can't see, but you can kind of see a line right here where it's, it changes. On top of this mountain and in that mountain range are uh, volcanic, uh, uh, what is it called? Uh, uh, what is it? 
Pumas? Pumas. I couldn't remember the name. Pumas, pumas, whatever. Uh, is, uh, is on top of the, this mountain and, and many around it. And so some people uh, claim that this is the mountain because it's the tallest in the Arabian Peninsula. Paul mentioned something about Arabia where the mount is. And so they kind of infer that this is it. And the black is because that's where God descended and charred all the rocks. Um, uh, most people do not agree with that. So just leave it at that. I'll, I put it up there. Just who knows? Is it true? Uh, doubtful. Um, okay. So, but you might see it on YouTube. So just go past it. Um, <laughs> say, say again. Say, stay off the YouTubes. Uh, so we get into uh, chapter 18 and they're on their way to Mount Sinai and they're in this little kind of in-between between the testing that we saw in the last chapter and the chapter before it, and before they get to get, actually get to Mount Sinai, and it's here in Mount Sinai or here on the way to Mount Sinai that Moses meets up with his father-in-law Jethro. So let's read there Exodus eighteen fourteen to eighteen. Somebody read that real loud. So then we get to the next, the very next passage, which is a few verses later. Um, so Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands and hundreds of fifties and of tens. And they judged the people at all times, any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. So it's here that Moses begins to pluralize his leadership. And the reason that he does that is because he meets uh, Jethro in the wilderness. Uh, Moses has obviously sent his wife and his children on or back to Midian with their father, with her father or his father-in-law and meets up with Jethro later on. He's got the whole crew with him. And Moses is basically recounting all of the things that God has done for the people of Israel, and Jethro is really excited. But then when Moses starts to actually do his job, Jethro goes, what in the world are you doing? You just sit around all day, and all these people just stand around you asking for decisions and counsel. And so they're bringing to Moses, they're, they're essentially trying to follow the Lord, is essentially what they're doing. And they're coming to Moses and they're presenting to him their, their way of following the Lord. Here's what's happened and how, what do I do in this situation? And it might be a, a situation with a neighbor or it might be a, their own personal decision. And Moses is, is basically giving an account of what it is that they should do. And so Jethro looks at that and he goes, this is nuts. You're going to burn yourself out. You just a million people, and you're just standing around, and you're you're here from sun up to sundown. And so he he tells him he needs to diversify. He needs to select uh, elders from amongst the groups, uh, uh, leaders from amongst the groups, and appoint them over the people to settle any kind of small dispute. So later in the Pentateuch, 
what Moses is going to do and what at, at the Lord's command is to essentially gather 70 of these what are what will be called judges and elders will be called uh, both 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 and he's going to gather all of them together and they're going to essentially decide for the people they're going to rule for uh, for Moses really in place of Moses over the people and so I want to just take a look at some things that happen in Numbers uh, chapter 11, verses 16 and 17 first, and just see kind of how this is coming to fruition. Uh, then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the, of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting. And let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there. And I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you may not bear it yourself alone. And so what, is it, what happens in the next passage? Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. And he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Um, now, look at what happens, though, in 26. It says, now two men, uh, where are we at? Yeah. Now, uh, two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent. And so they prophesied in the camp. Now, there's something that happens in, um, in this, this passage where Moses essentially... I'm having trouble losing my thing here. Make sure it comes up. Um, so, let me get it up here. No? Okay. Um, where Moses essentially is telling them, look, what the ideal scenario would be is that the the spirit would actually land on these other people. And so what happens is this Medad and Eldad stay behind in the camp, even though they're registered as the elders, to, they're supposed to come to the tent of meeting, they hang back in the camp and they begin to prophesy. Well, somebody hears this and they run to Moses in the following verses and they're like, uh, you need to know what's happening. You're the one that prophesies over us. And he, here we've got this situation where uh, two people are hanging back prophesying. And Joshua, the son of Nun, looks at Moses and he says, Look, uh, that's not normal. That's not supposed to happen. And is it? Right? Am I right? This is crazy. Shouldn't we run these people off? Shouldn't we kill them right now? And, uh, and, and, so, and Moses actually tells him, No. I, I wish that the Holy Spirit would fall on everybody so that they would all begin to prophesy. So that everybody would have the Holy Spirit, so that everybody would be able to do this. So I wouldn't have to really do this for anybody. Um, the reason that I bring that up is because, as we're going to see later on, by the time we get to the Jewish uh, setup of the temple in the land and the synagogues, what we're going to find in Greco-Roman times is that the Jewish elders had authority over religious and civic matters, and they even had the powers of excommunication. So what we're going to see in a group you'll probably recognize called the Sanhedrin. All right. How many people were in the Sanhedrin? Seventy-one. 
All right, so there's the larger Sanhedrin, which is made up of 71 people. There are 70 elders in the Sanhedrin, and there is one high priest, 71. How many are in this group that Moses is putting together? 71. 70 elders, and Moses functions as the one who can go into the Holy of Holies, right? So, you, so essentially, what is the Sanhedrin? The Jews in the first century, first century BC, first century AD, are basically cobbling together a very similar, the exact same leadership structure that they were given at Sinai. So this idea of the elder structure in Israel dates all the way back to the time of Moses. Now, they don't necessarily have uh, the Moses figure who has the authority uh, over, well, uh, to meet with God face to face on the mountain. Okay, they, don't, they may not have that, but they do have a high priest who's walking into the Holy of Holies, who's essentially forming that, that, uh, that function of the kind of Moses figure. And that's the purpose of the Sanhedrin. Now, you had the larger Sanhedrin, and then you also had the smaller Sanhedrin. And the smaller Sanhedrin was, there were, mul- there were many of these groups of 23 elders that were spread throughout uh, the synagogues, in various lands. So not all the times that you see the word Sanhedrin appear in the text, in the New Testament, when we see Jesus walking among and running into the Sanhedrin, not all of those times that's going to be the big Sanhedrin of 71 uh, people that rule all over Israel. Okay, Uh, Many times that's going to be the smaller Sanhedrin of 23 people scattered throughout the land in various synagogues. You'll also see times where he runs into the ruler of the synagogue, You'll see that a couple of times pointed out. He was the ruler of the synagogue. Jairus, I think, is pointed out as the ruler of the synagogue. Um, that He would be part of that smaller Sanhedrin group. But essentially, what are the Jews trying to do? They're just trying to replicate exactly what's coming from Sinai, and they're trying to basically continue that order in, in the land. Does that make sense? See what we're going for? Um, all right. Good grief. There we go. Now, eventually, what's going to happen? The prophet Joel uh, will tell us that the Holy Spirit is going to one day descend on all God's people. Let's look at Joel 2, 28 there in your verse packet. It should be la- uh, second, second page there, right about the middle. Joel 2, 28 and 29. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. So what do we see here? Except that the prophet Joel is saying there will be a day where Moses' desire of the Spirit being poured out on all of God's people, it will actually come about. There will be one day where that happens. When did that happen? When does that happen? Where is it? At Pentecost. Now we remember that uh, at Pentecost, in, it's actually in the book of Acts. If, if you have your Bible, you can, you can open there. Um, shouldn't take you very long to get there. It's after, just after John, the New Testament. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 14. 
But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For those people, these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And so what do we have at Pentecost? Everybody's babbling, and the people are supposing that they're drunk. But what's happening is the desire of Moses that the Holy Spirit be poured out on all flesh and the prophecy of Joel that one day it will take place and that the, the, all God's people will actually begin to prophesy. It won't just be Moses. And so the transition now to the church age, it's not as though we've cut out the Old Testament, left behind the Old Testament. We only follow the New Testament now. No, no, the Old Testament forms a foundation. And many of the things that are true of the church today form their foundations all the way back even to Sinai. Even from leadership structures and the things that Moses even desired back then are true now in the church today, where we may have, you and I may have different giftings, but we have the same spirit as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians. Does that make sense? Questions on that part of it? Comments? When he was talking about, yeah, 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 yeah. And we'll talk more about the Gentile piece of it in just, just a minute. But um, So point being, um, there, there's a day that Moses hoped for, that Joel prophesied about, that actually came to be um, in the New Testament era. Um, so then we get to the scene at Mount Sinai, and God begins to establish his covenant here in chapter 19. Now, chapter 19 is really important in the book of Exodus because the, the book is really kind of divided into two big pieces. Uh, chapters 1 to 18, which is God leading the children of Israel out of Egypt. And then chapters 20 to 40 is God establishing his law with them and, and uh, giving instructions on building the tabernacle. And so 19 forms this bridge between the two where God really first introduces himself in person to the children of Israel, and they're, they're terrified. Uh, <laughs> needless to say, they're shaking in their boots, but they're, they're, he's beginning to establish his, um, his uh, covenant with them. And so what's going to happen is he's going to descend on the mountain. And what we're going to see as he descends on the mountain is there, starts, there begins to be established there at Mount Sinai this three-part division of God's interaction with his people. He's going to descend onto the top of Mount Sinai. And on the top of Mount Sinai, only Moses is going to be allowed to go up there. He's going to be there um, and that the top of the where, where Moses is called up to is essentially akin to the Holy of Holies. We're going to see this same three-part division uh, that we see at Mount Sinai reflected in the tabernacle itself. So at the top of the mountain where God is, Moses is invited into. And then, after that, the priests are actually invited up to, um, 
onto the mountain, which is similar to the holy place where the priests are allowed to go. The people are not allowed to walk into the holy place, much less the holy of holies. But, but the priests are allowed to go into the holy place. All right? Uh, and so similar to the Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, in other words, is going to function a lot like a tabernacle, that they're going to be there for a year until they build the actual tabernacle. So Moses is allowed to go up to the top. Priests are allowed to go up onto the mountain. And the people are only allowed to go into, onto the, the base of the mountain and not to actually touch the mountain, which functions like the courtyard of the tabernacle. All right, now to just give you a visual picture here, because I know we like pictures. If we're looking at the way the tabernacle is going to be fashioned, here comes the pointer, and it's a white backdrop, so it's probably going to reflect, so just be prepared. Courtyard of the tabernacle, okay? The actual tabernacle itself, right here. Right here being the Holy of Holies, or the most holy place, you'll see it called. And then the holy place here. All right? So the priests are allowed to go in here. Only the high priest, or in this case Moses, um, is allowed to go in here. And then the area outside, which would be the court of the tabernacle, which is where people are allowed to go, bring their sacrifices to the priest. We're going to see the same pattern reflected in the temple as it's... Um, established for the Jews is you you have a very very similar structure to this in fact you're you're going to have the court outside um, not only for the Jews but you're also going to have a court for the Gentiles as well okay questions about that piece of it make sense okay Um, all right so what happens here at Mount Sinai is that God begins to administrate the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. So you'll remember, this is why this chapter is so incredibly important for the nation of Israel as a whole, but also uh, for the promises that God has given all the way back in Genesis chapter 15, so or chapter 12 and 15. And so we're going to see here in Exodus chapter, let's see, 19, verses 4 to 6, you see that there? Should be on the first page, I think, of your verse hand verse verse sheet. Is it? No, it's on the second page. Back sheet, back page, Exodus chapter nineteen, verses four to six. Uh, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So what is God doing here? He's establishing His people to be a representative to the entire world. Remember, this is not just God calling His people out to just, just only make them a possession for Himself. The children of Israel brought out of Egypt to be a blessing to whom? To all nations. Right there in, in verse uh, 6, you shall be a, to me a kingdom of what? Priests 
and a holy nation. What is a kingdom of priests? What is that? They're the way that the rest of the world has access to God. You get that? So the Jews are being called out. They're being taught his law. They're, being, they're going to be given the tabernacle eventually. They're given Mount Sinai for now. They're being trained in how to relate to God. Why? So they can just hoard him for themselves? No. So they can give him to other people. That's why. So that they can be a kingdom of priests. So that they can tell other people, here's how you access God, essentially. That's their, their role. So when God tells Abraham, through you and through your offspring, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed, how is he going to bless all the nations? Through giving the nations himself. You see that? He's giving the nations himself. All right. So he's establishing this Abrahamic covenant with, he's continuing it on in the people of Israel. But there's another fundamental reason, a connection that we need to make back to the book of Genesis. So just like Adam, uh, Israel was created to rule, but its dominion was supposed to redefine the authority that the world had perverted. So remember, if you go back to um, the Garden of Eden, which in, later on in the, in the Old Testament will be called the mountain of God. You know what else will be called the mountain of God in addition to the Garden of Eden? I'll give you one hint. It's where we are right now. No, uh-uh-uh, before Jerusalem, Sinai is also referred to as the mountain of God. So we have the Garden of Eden referred to as the mountain of God, and then Sinai referred to as the mountain of God. There's going to be another place that's going to be referred to as the mountain of God. You've said it. Yeah, Zion, right? So it's going to be the mountain of God. Where is the eventual end times garden going to be? Did he say? Zion, right? All things going to come back to a full circle where God will dwell with his people once again. Okay, so Mount Zion, or sorry, uh, Mount Sinai for them functions as a restoration, essentially, of what Adam lost in the garden. Adam was there with God, ruling and reigning with God, and what was he supposed to do? We talked about this all the way back in Genesis. What was, what was Adam supposed to do? He was supposed to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and put it under his thumb. That's what he was supposed to do. He was supposed to curate the garden until it spread across the entire globe. Take the mountain of God and spread it across the entire globe. Did he do that? No. In chapter 3, we see the unclean thing slithering in in the, in the serpent. He didn't do it. He failed. And so, what do we see happening by the time he creates for himself a people in Abraham? He brings them through 70 people down in Egypt, puts them under the rule of the Egyptians, conquers the Egyptians, brings them out, brings them all the way to Mount Sinai. What is he establishing now? A people through Abraham, a family who would basically take the place of Adam. They would rule like Adam was supposed to rule and couldn't. Are we going to find that Israel is able to do this? No. So when we talk about Christ being the new and better Israel, what do we mean? We mean that 
the idea of him going to the mountain of God, taking the rule and reign of God and bringing it to humanity, that's exactly what Christ ends up doing in the New Testament. Not only that, but just as Moses stands on a mountain and delivers to the, to the crowds the Ten Commandments, the law of God, and teaches the people how to obey God, what do we see Jesus doing in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount? Is He's going into the land of Israel and He's delivering for them a critique on the law of Moses and how they've perverted the law and how they've twisted it. And He's giving them the intention of what the law is supposed to give to you, what the law is supposed to do. And so he's establishing himself as the new and better Moses who's going to lead his people out of exile and into the garden of God through, obe- through true obedience to his word. But what his rule and reign is going to inaugurate is the Holy Spirit descending on the people and actually then being empowered to obey it. Does that make sense? Do what? Following his own exodus. Yeah. <laughs> um, all of these themes that are being, be, being opened in Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the New Testament authors are all picking up on. They're all seeing these themes opened in the Old Testament. There, you, need, you need to look no further than Revelation itself. And how many times John references the Exodus story in Revelation? I'm going to show you one at the end of this that is so evident, it's unbelievable. Um, But so, uh, anyway, we have this uh, scene where they're being established as the the new Adam, which they're going to fail to execute the rule and reign of God and give justice to the nations. They're they're not going to be able to do that either. Um, So, uh, the second part of this is while man is it up there? Yeah, while mankind's uh, access to God's presence was lost after Adam sinned, God is restoring His presence with humanity through Abraham's family. Again, we see that same promise there in Genesis twelve three fifteen five seventeen seven and eight. He gives all of those promises that Israel is there called out excuse me, of, of Egypt to fulfill. Now, the further irony of this, or the, the, to kind of further this, this image a little bit more, Peter is actually going to connect um, the commissioning of the church to the mission of Israel at Sinai in 1 Peter 2, 5, and 9. Let's look at that. 1 Peter 2. You've read these verses before. I know you have, but you may not have recognized this language. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession. Who is it? First of all, he's talking to the church. And what is he saying about them? Where does that language come from? That comes from Sinai. It comes from right here in the Old Testament. He's, he's, he's 
saying that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim his excellencies. But look what he says. They may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. What are you proclaiming? His excellencies. Who are you revealing? You're revealing him. What was Israel supposed to do? Reveal him. Bring people to him. Be a royal priesthood so that people could have access to God. Now, you are that because of Christ. Christ was Israel. Christ is the new and better Israel. We're his body. We do as he does. We're called what he is. Um, this language also comes from Deuteronomy 7, 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord. This is God talking to Israel. Holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples of the, who are on the face of the earth. Peter doesn't just make up this language in 1 Peter. This isn't just off the cuff. He's, he's pulling from all of the promises at Sinai of Israel. Um, questions about that? Comments about that? Concerns, fears, hopes, dreams, pet peeves? What? What do you mean? Okay, no, no, because um, th this is where people get really, really askew. There's this idea of, uh, and, and this is connected, but just follow me for a second. Um, this idea of replacement theology, that the church replaces Israel. I'm sure you've probably heard this before. Maybe you have. That's not what anybody's saying. I don't know anybody that actually is saying that. Maybe some people on the internet are saying that. I'm sure they are. But, uh, and, but they're weird and they're, they're not speaking truth. Um, nobody is saying that the church is replacing Israel. What we are saying is that Jesus is Israel. Okay, so the reason we're not failing is because Jesus didn't fail. Right? That, that's all we have to be concerned about on, on that end. So is the plan of God going to work? Well, yes, because it already worked in Christ. He resurrected from the dead. He, it, all of that's been sealed. Christ is Israel's fulfillment, okay? We have been incorporated into his body. So we're just the train of his robe, right? We're, we're, we're going as he goes. We are doing as he does. He is leading and we are following. And we're given the power of the Holy Spirit to, to follow that. So um, there, there, you know, sometimes you'll hear people say things like, uh, well, if the, ch if the church was just the church, then you know, we wouldn't have this, that, or the other. Or these kinds of things wouldn't exist. I don't think that's true. I, I, I think, um, so let me separate two statements here. The, I think the church is the church. The church is being the church. I don't think, however, all the things, all the people that we call a part of the church are actually the church. And so you have people who are maybe engaged in all kinds of heinous acts and things like this, and they're just going along in their life, and they're not actually part of the church. But they're members of, you know, such and such Baptist church, or Emmanuel Baptist church, and we call them a part of the church, and maybe we don't know those things, but that's not an actual reflection of what the true church is, right? So the people of God, no doubt we're going to sin. Of course, of course we're going to sin, but, um, uh, but, but the, the people of the church be characterized by repentance, right? 
on the whole, um, the, the road may be long, but it bends towards repentance, right? So, if that helps. Um, yes, very good question. And, uh, uh, yeah. Um, so, you're, you're going to see in this passage in chapter 19, if you'll, you'll read it, and we won't read all of it, but I want you to see this refrain that kind of comes up as God uh, descends on the mountain. It, it look at verse 16 of chapter 19 this is an example of this. Uh, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. So all the people in the camp trembled. Okay? So when God descends on Mount Sinai, there's this thunder and lightning. There's these, there's these uh, uh, weather phenomenon that takes place, and it scares the heebie-jeebies out of the people that are there at the base. And there's a point where Moses actually is called up to the mountain to meet with God. And God says, you know, bring the people up here. And he's like, uh, they don't want to come. <laughs> and because there's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, well, there's strange things that are happening up there. And I don't, I'm not really in a hurry to get up there uh, and see it. Plus, they've been told, he says, they, they don't want to come because they've been told uh, that if they set foot on the mountain, they'll be killed. And God tells them, yeah, I'm going to kill you if you touch the mountain uh, because you need to be cleaned first. And so he gives Moses instructions, chapter 19, to cleanse all the people and uh, basically kind of similar to the idea of baptism that we have. But um, he, he tells them to, to cleanse all the people before they ever set foot on the mountain. And then when he tells them to come up, uh, I think it's another test. I'm pretty sure we're supposed to read it as another test where the people are going, no, we, we get it and we, we believe that we're going to just take a step back. We don't want to... We don't want to do that. And so, um, but, but the point is that they're seeing these kind of natural phenomenon. Well, what happens in Revelation uh, is we see the same kind of thing appear in Revelation at the close of every judgment period. So look at Revelation uh, there in your packet, Revelation 8, 5. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were pearl, uh, sorry, there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning and an earthquake. We keep going. We get another close there uh, in verse 19. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and an earthquake and heavy hail. Uh-oh, there's hail added to it. And then in 16, 18, uh, there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, a great earthquake such as there never had been uh, since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. Where's that coming from? Where's John's language coming from? Coming from Sinai. He's recycling the same words of Sinai back in Revelation. And why? Because God's dealing with the wicked. And he's punishing the wicked for wickedness. And he's ultimately closing out human history, essentially. Is that what they're talking about? The thunder and lightning on that mountain? It's in, in, in Sinai, you mean? In Sinai, it's a, a sign of God's presence. That God is really there. Okay. Um, and that's also what's happening in Revelation, is that this judgment is from God, okay? But he's, he shows up, and he shows up with his holiness, right, in, with him. And what is the result of God bringing his holiness uh, to the, the world, but that the people that are uh, follow the beast, the people that are wicked, uh, the people that are without Christ, perish as a result, which is what he tells them is going to happen at Sinai if they set foot on the mountain and they don't, they're not cleansed. 
We're going to see actually at the close of Exodus where they've got this tabernacle prepared and Moses can't walk into it <laughs> because he's not cleansed. And so we get the book of Leviticus, right? The book of Leviticus is meant to say, like, how, how do I get in here? How do I access this? Let's, let's talk about Leviticus first. Right? Um, so God's going to eventually give them these Ten Commandments and he's going to give them his law. And what is the purpose? It is so that the people reflect his character. That's for sure. He's setting them apart. But it's also so that they live distinctly from the fallen world around them. So you remember I read that verse out of, out of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You're a, royal, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. But then listen to what Peter says in verse 10 and following. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Here's this. Listen, listen very closely. Verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's what Israel was supposed to be, is a royal priesthood. Peter is now calling the church, you're a royal priesthood. So what does that mean you should do? Before pagans, keep your conduct clean. Keep your conduct clean at all times, but keep your conduct clean especially before Gentiles. Why? So that they'll see who you serve, and they'll want to serve him too so that you will actually be a royal priesthood. Does that make sense? That's what, but Peter's connecting it all the way back to Sinai. That's where he gets his language. He's saying, you are this. Christ is perfectly Israel. You have been brought into his body. Be then Christ to people. Questions? Except Christ. Almost as if he was like, I don't know, teaching us. Any other questions? Wow. No questions. Go ahead, David. I'm waiting until there are. Let's sing another verse. <laughs> okay. Uh, no, I, I think it's I think it's good advice. I don't think God has ever deviated from that. Um, I think that's, I think Jethro's speaking uh, on behalf of the Lord. Uh, God is the one that tells him to call out leaders uh, later in numbers. And the Jews then do it in the first century. I don't think God has ever deviated from that plan of leadership of his people. Ever.
Yeah. You're, um, the elders are always responsible for that role. You see that even in the church. Elders are responsible for that. Um, that happens. The, the, uh, there's a lot of confusion, I think, around that whole topic as we get into the church, church age and what happens then uh, in relation to the church. The church came out of the synagogue. So they're, they're adopting essentially what seems to be reflected in Acts and on throughout Timothy, Titus, various books in the New Testament, is that they're adopting essentially the same leadership style they've had since Sinai. They're, but I mean, it would be a total foreign concept for them to do another leadership style completely outside of what they know, which is elders, a plurality of elders leading the group of people that are called out under the covenant. It's just, it's plain language. And um, so Paul, the, the apostles are all reflecting that language in the New Testament on throughout uh, all the New Testament. They're reflecting that same uh, leadership structure in all the churches. That's what he tells Titus, that's what he tells Timothy, is to go appoint elders. Why? Because we're uh, the community called by Christ. We are the new, the new Sinaitic community, and that's how we are led, is the way that we've always been led, and that we were always intended to be led. Um, so what do we see the elders doing? Teaching. That's their qualification. Teaching. And there's a moral component to it as well. Well, what does God, how does God identify his elders in, at Sinai? He, he tells him, pick out people that are not going to take bribes. He, he, he doesn't call for people that are merely ancient. He actually doesn't even put an age on it. He says elders, but he doesn't put an, a number on the age. He just says people that are elders in the community, but that are not corrupt, that are not going to take bribes, and they're not going to be corrupt people. He puts the qualification on it then as well. And then we see the New Testament picking up the same language. They're just doing, they're doing the same thing that they were doing at Sinai. They're, re they're repeating that through the church age. So some things never change. Other questions? Comments? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and just uh, how how it resonates with us and um, how true it is even today, uh, 3,500 years after this is written, it still is applicable to us that we may live lives of holiness as you've called us out. Um, you have set us apart and uh, as a people who um, will charge into the world and proclaim the gospel, the good news of Christ. And I pray, Father, that you would give us that boldness, that courage. Um, to live as you have called us, um, to live as people who reject falsehood and, um, and pursue righteousness and peace. In Jesus' name, amen.